tonight one, if not the most difficult passages in all of Scripture to implement in our lives. And as we've been spending time with Jesus this last six months, we've been simply the Savior, we've spent time in the I Am's, we've wandered through the Beatitudes with Jesus, we're, we're now in the Sermon on the Mount, this is our eighth study here in the Sermon on the Mount, and these things, not only are they complementary, but they actually expand on what's previously been said by the Lord. As he's saying these things, it's if each time he brings up a new topic, it's like if you thought that was hard, you know, if you thought, you know, well, we know that murder begins in the heart, we know that, you know, to, to have a lustful mind is to get pretty close to being an adulterer, and then last time we were together, retaliation and retribution and revenge, I mean, we can kind of see how, you know, the Lord really wouldn't want us doing those kind of things, and, and yet he empowers us, and we can kind of get through that, but tonight, it's like, I, I think, me, for me personally, let me personalize it. For me personally, this is the most difficult passage in Scripture to implement in my own life. Because it says something that is unthinkable at the human level. In almost all cases, it's even undoable at a human level. Because it requires something of us that we in our humanness are not. If you think it was hard not to retaliate, if you think it's hard not to have retribution, if you think that rebuking people you know, might be your spiritual gift, then when you get to this one, to love your enemies. And I want to be really, really, really careful as we go forward because, again, Jesus will use the formula, have you not heard, and he's going to take part of the law again. He's going to speak from the Decalogue, from the Ten Commandments. He's going to say, look, it, it says, you know, love your neighbor. It's the command of the Old Testament. Jesus said, here's, here's, the, here's the law, here's the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts. And your neighbor is yourself. Well, you know, God, I kind of sort of love you with all of my heart. I'm working on it. But I don't even like my neighbor. Not only do I not love my neighbor, my neighbor's evil. You can see somebody has nice neighbors. I don't even like my neighbor. My neighbor is not my friend. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is if you can't love people that you kind of just sort of dislike, what's going to happen when you get where Jesus got? When you're asked that unbelievable question you see Jesus cried out from the cross father forgive them you and me all of us every last one of us in this room you didn't know it but you were at the crucifixion you were standing right there at the foot of the cross Maybe your heart was like the centurions. Maybe your heart was one of the Roman guards. Maybe yours was one of the disciples. Maybe even there in one of the Marys that attended unto Jesus, perhaps Joseph of Arimathea. You see, somewhere in that crowd, maybe you were in the group that was in the courtyard of Pilate. We do not want this man to rule over us. Somewhere in all of that was you. So tonight, love your enemies. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come back to your house, Lord, having spent such a glorious morning here, we've come back for, a, as was prayed earlier today, 
uh, an extra dip on the ice cream cone of your word, Lord. We want to put another scoop into it. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would be present in this place. And Jesus, this is impossible without you. We can't do it, and we confess it. Matter of fact, we won't do it, and we confess that too. And Lord, we need your help because this is the one thing that marks us as your kids. It is the very thing that identify you as a savior of the world. You died for the ungodly. It wasn't righteous men and women. It was ungodly men and women that you died for. And so, Lord, help us to clean, to drink deep from your well. Bless us with your spirit's presence tonight. And I want to pray, God, that there's people tonight that are here and they have been struggling with being unloving. Maybe there's marriages represented tonight where there is literal hatred right there in the home. Maybe there's a tinge of some racial divide or something that just says, I refuse to love that person. Let us all tonight hear the word of the Lord. Speak to us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 43 here in Matthew 5, continuing on with this incredible sermon delivered to the disciples and to that crowd gathered with them as they sat on that mountain on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You've heard that it is said, as Jesus looked around, you can almost imagine him kind of checking out the crowd to see how they were responding to it because by now he said the same phrase multiple times and so they kind of know to get ready they, they can almost hear him saying okay here it comes you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy You know, the sad part is, I could say that just like that, and there are a whole bunch of people probably in this room tonight that actually think the latter part of that phrase is found someplace in the Old Testament in the law. And it's not. Jesus was actually messing with them a little bit. He was testing them. He, he was doing what the enemy does, because here's how the enemy works. The enemy uses a little bit of truth, and then a little lie. Now, Jesus wasn't lying here, but he was saying something that was not accurate. It wasn't truthful, not because he was trying to deceive them. He was trying to expose their heart. He was trying to get them to come to that place to where maybe some in the crowd are going, Amen, brother. That's right. Man, I love my neighbor. Boy, I hate my enemies. Matter of fact, I work really hard. Man, I killed a couple of enemies yesterday. Going to go out and kill me some more tomorrow. You see, Jesus was trying to get them to expose their weaknesses. And the Word does that to us. The Lord does that to us, doesn't he? Does the Lord ever expose your weaknesses? Maybe it's just me. But the Lord speaks through his word to me in those areas, and all of a sudden I hear it and I go, man, I need to change. I'm 60 years old. I've been in the ministry half of my life. I need to change. You shall love your neighbor. And you'll notice if you have a new King James that that's actually in bolder writing it's because it's being emphasized so that you can understand that Jesus is doing something here and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies because it was actually sort of true because the rabbis had gotten to the place where it's eh, justifiable you know after all those people have been pretty mean They've been saying bad stuff about you to you, behind your back. 
you know, your wife did this, your husband did that, your kids did this, your cat, your kids did that, your mom did this, your mom did that, your boss did this, your boss did that, the government did this, the government did that, that group of people did this, and that group of people did that. So of course you're justified in hating them. I mean, who wouldn't agree with you? I mean, after all, you were verbally abused. And I'm not making light of that, by the way. I'm drawing attention to it. Everybody's got their excuse as to why they won't live this out. Everybody has their excuse as to why they feel they're the exemption to loving your enemies. Well, I don't want to love my enemies. That's actually the very point that Jesus is making. It's not natural. It is very supernatural for you to love your enemies. It has to come from someplace else. It can't come from you. It won't come from you. Most of everything will come from you but that. Bless those who curse you. I love the way the Lord does this in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, he kind of makes it so... I hope you guys are listening. It's like, get this. Make sure your hearing's doing pretty good right now. And so he throws out a little bit of thing. They have to judge it. And he's making them think on the fly. The Bible does that. Makes you think. It's like, really? Supposed to hate my enemies? Yeah, you know, I can see that. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Boy, is that the most unnatural thing on the face of the earth? Do good to those who hate you? Are, are you kidding me? Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be your son, the sons of your Father in heaven. Think of that. The Lord is basically saying this in a nutshell. He's saying, these things will mark you like a child of God, like nothing else. If, if you were to sit there and think about what could I actually do that if I accomplished it, if I did it, if I did it well, if I functioned in that place effectively, what could I do that the moment somebody heard it, somebody saw it, they would instantaneously go, that's Jesus. That can't be anyone but Jesus. That person so loves the Lord that what they're doing is exactly like Jesus. This is it. Loving people who hate you. Doing good to people who have used you. Not only not... Now get this. He's not only advocating not returning evil for evil... He's actually taking it so much further as to do good, bless someone who has done evil to you. If anybody in here finds that easy, write a book. It will be a bestseller. Every Christian in the world will want to read it. Because if you've got a secret to doing good to people who've been mean to you, the whole world needs to know it. For illustration purposes, he says that he makes his son. God is now showing us exactly what this looks like. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. Have you ever noticed that even bad people still get sunshine in their life? Some horrible, despicable person, some murderer, some rapist, some child molester, you know, name your favorite thing that you would say, that's about as bad as you can be as a human being. Pick it out, whatever it is for you. That same person, if you both walk down to to Rat Beach, they're going to get the same sunset that you get. Right? They're going to look up at the same moon and stars... That rain that fell earlier today is going to sprinkle on them. Their plants are going to get watered. 
They're going to smell that freshness of washing some of the pollutant out. You know that smell right after a rain. One of the most wonderful things about living in the mountains is this time of year is when the fall colors begin to to be in their, their fullest. And it's like the trees are on fire. It's like God just painted them and said, look at this golden beauty. You see, even a despicable, evil, vile person who deserves nothing still gets some providential grace from God. Rain still falls on them. Sins rain on the just. The sun rises on the evil and on the good. Sins rain on the just and the unjust. Even if you weigh things wrongly, he's now making these things. He's saying, look, evil, good, just, unjust. He's, He's really making a comparison between dark and light. He's saying, look, someone who lives in the darkness and lives in the light, God is still good to both of them. Isn't that crazy? You see, the way we are as human beings, we're good to people who are good. We're nice to people who are nice to us. And the nicer you are to me, the nicer I will be back to you. That's kind of the way humankind functions, isn't it? Most of us don't wander around and go, hey, could you punch me in the face? I just love it when people punch me in the face. Could you steal everything I have? Because I just love being ripped off all the time. And I just, man, would you mistreat me? I would really like, could you disrespect me today? I just can't wait to be disrespected. No, we don't do that. We, we generally flee from people who do those kind of things to us, right? Most people don't wander around and, you know, they, they don't really want to join the most abused club. And yet the Lord is saying, look, even those people who are like that, people who go out and they cause everyone else on this earth Pain, suffering, injustice. God takes actually some care of each of those. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? You see, that's a natural inclination because when you love someone who loves you, there's actually something in it for you, isn't there? You're reciprocating in like kind. That's that quid pro quo. That's tit for tat. That's lex talionis. That's you did something for me, I'll do something for you. You just kind of, well, it works out that way. You know, you scratch, yeah, that, oh, that feels pretty good. Yeah, here, let me scratch your back too. It's kind of the way it works in our world. Can I sadly tell you that there are a lot of marriages that are built on that premises? That that's how their marriage works. As long as there's something being done that's good, then the other spouse loves them. But oh, when something comes up they don't like, the fingers of Satan gets into the marriage. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? He's talking about a heavenly reward there. He's talking about the behemoth. What's going to happen when you get to heaven? Loving, loving people, loving, loving people is not going to get you a reward. Because it's easy to do. It's what you naturally tend to do. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And when Jesus uses that in a a Hebrew idiom, when he's speaking about Judaic life at the time, they felt about tax collectors about like we feel about IRS. It's pretty much the same. You're not inviting them over for Thanksgiving. It's just not happening. You send a little note into the IRS. We'd really like to invite your office over for Thanksgiving. It's probably not going to happen. Because it was seen then, much as it is now, someone who collects taxes, they're, they're almost stealing from you. And in that day and time, they were literally stealing from the populace. The tax collectors were the stooges of the Romans. And so when the Romans sent a tax collector, what they would do is they would go into the community and they would find someone who was socially on the outs with everyone else in the town. They would then promote them to tax collector because they were already disliked. So the person didn't care if they were disliked. And so they would then give them the task of taking these taxes for Rome. In other words, bleeding them dry 
And then that person would bear the, the hate and the, and the venom of the community for the Roman government. But they became very wealthy. And so when Jesus says, you know, tax collectors actually love people who love them back. But he was really saying to him, you know how you feel about tax collectors. You know, it's kind of like, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from paying taxes? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? In other words, you know, we all have our little sphere of friends. Isn't it weird how when you're traveling, you go someplace, maybe with a group of guys, group of gals, and you're out together with your friends, and you've got some common thing that you're going to go do? It's like... Everything just kind of fades away. It's like you're, you're on, you know, us guys, we're going on our fishing trip this coming Saturday. We'll get out on that boat, and people will be throwing up over the side and doing all kinds of hideous things. You know, that's what happens when you get some people on a fishing boat, and they're like, oh, you know, and we'll be, oh, that's awesome. That's great. You know, we'll be over there talking. How do you feel? Obviously not good. How can we pray? I hope you feel better, but we're still fishing. You know, it's just like everything's fine. Whatever's going on, be all right. When you're around people that like you, you can even deal with anything. You greet your brethren only, what do you have that's more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors also do that? That's basically what he's saying. Yeah, when they know somebody, they're their friends, of course they greet them. And therefore... And I want you to underline the word perfect. And I'll give you the, the Greek word that's used there in a little bit because it's really important. Because it's not perfect like you're going to be perfect like God is perfect. But that is the goal. And therefore, you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so right now you're probably saying to yourself, forget it, I give up. I quit. But this is so like Jesus. Because this is exactly what he did for you, he did for me. Remember that Romans 5 is this this story. Romans 5 and verse 6, it says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinful mankind. Remember when Jesus died, before he died, there were how many Christians on the earth? Zero. None. You couldn't yet be one. Because the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, had not given his life a ransom for many yet. There were some that were in waiting. Jesus went and met them because he first descended, who ascended, exactly as we saw in Ephesians. But there were no Christians. And so what Paul was saying, while we're still without strength, the incapacity to do these things, the difficulty of even thinking of loving someone who hates you, that's exactly what Jesus did. I believe that Jesus loved Judas Iscariot to the end. I believe that Jesus loved Pontius Pilate. I believe that Jesus loved his Roman captors. That cohort that came to arrest him in the garden, not one bit of ill will did he have towards any of them. And we got a glimpse of that when Peter lopped off the high priest's servant Malchus's ear. Remember what Jesus, put your sword away. Come on. Seriously? You think that's who I am? Peter, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. For scarcely a righteous man would one die, Paul would write there in Romans 5. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still, while we were yet, while we were actively engaged, immersed in, we were sinning. 
is the actual connotation. While we were still sinning, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus did exactly what he's asking in the Sermon on the Mount. He did the very thing he's asking. Hard for us to do. Story that's told, Confucius saw man's predicament. He had, he had fallen into quicksand, and the man is in the quicksand, and these great religious rulers of the day happened to be uh, standing nearby, and Confucius saw the man's predicament there in the quicksand. And his words to the man were, it's quite evident that man should stay out of places like this. You see, wisdom would say that, wouldn't it? Wisdom would say, hey, knucklehead, it's quicksand. Wisdom would do it. Wisdom's a good thing. But wisdom alone is not love, is it? Not very loving when someone's in quicksand. Hey, you probably should think about not being in there. I can see you have an issue. You could have avoided it. Don't you, don't you love the Captain Obviouses in your life? Look, I know. The sand up to my neck is pretty good evidence I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, okay? Next, Buddha wanders on by Siddhartha Gautama. He, he observes the situation. He said, let that man's plight be a lesson to the rest of the world. Got some karma going on, amen? Got a little bit of karmic action going right there. It's like you must, you're, you're right there in the midst of that. That's exactly where you should be. Your whole life has led to this moment. Oh, useless one. And Muhammad wanders on by. Alas, it is the will of God. You see that fatalism of a completely capricious God who says, look in, you know, it's probably what you deserve. And finally Jesus appears. And he says, take my hand. See, that's the difference between all the world's religions in a nutshell. Some preach wisdom. Some preach some form of karmic reaction. Some preach absolute sovereignty, but only one loves at all times. And that's Jesus. Jesus didn't ask whether the guy was too stupid to stay out of the quicksand. He didn't say, well, you obviously have done something, and that's why you're in there. You're just getting payback. And he didn't say, look, I'm God. Some of you need to go. He said, no matter how you got in there, no matter what the reason is that you're up to your neck about ready to die, Give me your hand. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen? You see, that's you. That's me. We all get into these situations in our life for varying reasons. Some of us make bricks look smart. Okay? Some of us have been downright evil and we deserve everything we get. Some of us are just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But all of us need a helping hand. That's what this passage is teaching. You see, there's going to come your day and your time when all of these basic characteristics are going to apply to your life. And they're also going to apply to everyone else's life that you will ever come in contact with. You're going to have people in all these categories in your life. And the Lord says... Here's how to fix it all. Love them. Don't ask so many questions. 
You know, as I've gotten older, I've learned that it really doesn't matter why someone's life is falling apart. It matters that you care that someone's life is falling apart. Because knowing why actually isn't going to generally help them. It may give them some closure on some of the details. It may provide a background of understanding. It can give them a few things. But what they really need is a hand that says, take my hand and let's go through this together. That's what Jesus is advocating here. And it's so godlike. The word perfect that's translated here does not imply sinless perfection for you and I. It implies that we are seeking the one who is sinlessly perfect, and that's Jesus. In other words, he's the goal, he's the model, and what we're trying to do is reach completion. We're trying to get there. So we're trying to be as much like him as we can. And it it shows maturity. You see, when people recognize they have a deficiency, they try and grow in that area of deficiency. Amen? Is anyone in here completely filled up with love so that you don't need any more? Not me. Don't look for my hand to go up. I'm still a work in progress, and probably all of you are as well. But boy, am I a bunch better than I used to be. There's a couple of times in my life I could have written some books on hate. I, I could have got out, you know, here, let me give you a few notes. You want to really hate them? Do this. You know, most of us would agree that it's good to resist the impulse to, to seek retribution, those things that we saw last Sunday night. But Jesus takes this a full another step. And so he says to them, look, the law and the prophets depend on the character of God. But there's no commandment that says, hate your neighbor. There's no commandment that says, hate your enemy. There's no commandment that says to hate anybody. Matter of fact, he already addressed it. He said, hating people will lead to murder. And now he takes it all the way to its logical conclusion that if you can get past that one, the final step is being so loving that you actually love people who don't, deserve to be loved because that's exactly what he did at Calvary's cross there's not one person who's ever deserved God's love not me, not you not anybody, anytime, anywhere any place, not the great apostle Paul Paul did not deserve the love of God, matter of fact in some ways he literally got goaded into it, amen you remember that little trip there in Acts chapter 9 Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who is it? Lord. (laughs) He's on his way to kill Christians. He's breathing threats. He's breathing murder against God's people. And the Lord meets him in that murderous place. And he strikes him blind and sends him into the wilderness. He says... We need to get a few things straight. I'm God and you're not. And so Jesus gives us really the divine perspective in all of this. You see, because agape love, and if you read 1 Corinthians 13, there are those those 15 characteristics of what love is and what love isn't. Every last verb that's used to describe love, love is patient, love is kind, All of these things, when you go down that list in 1 Corinthians 13, every last one of them is an action. You see, real love works at being loving. Real love takes the time to not keep record of wrong. Amen? You see, that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, if you want to see how you're doing in your love quotient... Try it out when people are mean to you. Try loving them when they're doing the things that would say that they don't love you. Try loving them when they're doing that. And so what we have in this passage is really the divine perspective. And I want to leave you with five things in our remaining time tonight. I'm going to give them to you fairly quickly. And so 
they're increasingly difficult as standards. So if you look at this passage, just imagine that the first step is the easiest one. The first step is actually the easiest one. Jesus says in verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Everything else gets more difficult from there. He came for that express purpose. Jesus has overlooked every sinful thing that we've all ever done. He, he's looked at your, your history of sin. You realize that each one of you, in, in an eternal sense, in a sovereign sense, has a history of all the junk you've ever done in your entire life. There's also, in that sense, because God knows everything, amen? He knows the good, he knows the bad, he knows the ugly. He knows all of it. So in that sense, you can kind of metaphorically think of these things, that there's, there's this giant list of all the stuff that you've ever done that's bad, and then there's this really small list of the good stuff that you've ever done. Aren't we weird creatures? Because when we deal with other people, don't we take that big long list of the evil things that they've done, and you take the short list of the good things that you've done, and, and somehow it cancels it out? Isn't that weird? It's like, well, just, you know, overlook my faults. But I'm not overlooking yours. Just overlook my faults, my deficiencies, my weakness. I, I want you to, you know, I mean, it's a short list. I don't have a whole lot of good things on here. But my good things are way better than, you know. I mean, they cancel out your bad stuff. We're list keepers. Aren't you glad God's not an actual list keeper? He knows them. He's sovereign. But he's removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. He's taken your transgressions, buried them in the sea. He's put them behind his back. He cannot see them by the blood of Christ. He leaped over all of those things that would keep us apart. So the first thing he says is, look, love the unlovable. He uses a fir- a, a, such a, a firm uh, rendering in the, in the original language, in the Greek language of our New Testament and in the Septuagint, what it says is, look, the, the Greek verbs here, they're, they're what we call pronominal suffixes. And so when you look at them, it literally already says, when he says, I say, he's using a single Greek word, lego, not like the toys, lego. It, it means already, I say. And then he puts in front of it, ego. So what he's saying is ego, lego. In other words, he's actually saying, I, I say. Just in case you don't get it, I, I say. Me, God, says to you, human being, I say. This is how you're supposed to do it. Love your enemies. Love the unlovable. Rabbis did exactly the opposite, and their tradition was placed above God's commands. And he's saying, look, uh, if you're going to really love people, because he's using the word, again, agape or agapeo, when you love other people as God loves, that is agape love. It's love that asks nothing in return. It was willing to give everything, even to the point of death. He said, if you really want to love like I love, then I want you to agapeo your enemies. You see, we're saying, eh, you know, I can have a little bit of phileo for my enemies. I can have some brotherly compassion for them. I, I can, you know, I can even, you know, I don't really like that girl or I don't really like that guy, but I kind of have some arrows for them. There's some physical attraction, so, you know, I'm you know, I give them a little bit of love. There's actually four words. We often use three, but there's really four. And that fourth word is the Greek word storga. And that word is, is like the love of family. Because you know how your family is. You don't like them, but you still love them, right? You know what I'm saying? They come around at Thanksgiving, you go, oh, please, I hope they don't come. But I love you. You still send them a Christmas card. You sign it in love. But you're kind of hoping that they have some kind of car malady on Thanksgiving. 
because you know they're going to bring, you know, their usual rancidness to your Thanksgiving table, and you, but you still love them. They're family. You don't even know why you love them, but you love them. That's the Greek word storga. Oh, yeah, I could like him as friends. You know, he's pretty handsome. She's pretty cute. So got a little bit of that going on. Yeah, they're family. I kind of like them. But the Lord's saying, look, if you really want to take it all the way to where it needs to go, then you need to have agape for them. If they punch you, if they use you, if they mistreat you, if they abuse you, no matter what they do, you love them in return. And it gets tougher from here. First John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10 declare this for us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love God does not know God, for God is agape. God actually is. If you could define God in one word, it would be love. That's really the only one word definition for God's character, his nature, all that he is. You could actually define it in the word agape. God is love. You see, God is majestic. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's all those omni things. He is everywhere. He knows everything. He can do anything. That's all true. But being all-powerful does not describe the depth of his character and love. It just says he can do anything. Being everywhere at once, same thing. Having all knowledge, exactly the same thing. But the one word that defines who God is, God is love. And because of that love, we know how to love. We have an example of it. When Jesus in John 13 had finished, remembered teaching the disciples, he actually washed their feet in that passage there in John 13. He, he took off his own clothes. He, he put upon himself the, the garment, the wrap of a servant. He wrapped his loins with a loincloth, and he got down on his knees in front of sinful mankind, and he scrubbed the filth of the world off of their feet. And he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved. Look, I'm Peter. Remember, we've been through some stuff together, Peter. You and me. Remember that time when you said you'd never deny me? You remember that, Peter? And you didn't do it once. You didn't do it twice. You did it three times in the same, exactly as I told you you would. Can I wash your feet? Now, I don't know if you've ever participated in, in a foot washing. It is, it can be life-changing. Because there's no polite way to do it. There, there's no... You, you know, you can't like get out, you can't go to the car wash and get the power washer and just like, okay, you sit over there. <laughs> Looks good. <laughs> no, you, you, you take someone's feet that have walked in the world and you put them in your hands and you caress their feet and you get the dirt at this time from between their toes and there was no pavement and lots of farm animals. Do the math. <laughs> They're scrubbing away and getting the filth off. And then Jesus takes the towel that's actually keeping him from being naked in front of the disciples. And he uncovers himself. He would have to do that he literally would have been exposing himself to the disciples. Look, e even my nakedness, e even what you would say is shameful, I will willingly do for you. Because that's how much I love you. And I want you to know it. 
I'll take that dirt out from between your toes. I will make sure. And then they would usually take some olive oil and actually massage the feet because their feet got very cracked from just having constantly being covered with dirt and dust and all kinds of stuff from the animals. And so the Lord would have taken each of their feet and cleaned them and then massaged them with oil. And he says, as I have done for you, as I have taken the dirt off of you and replaced it with my Holy Spirit, the oil, and I've, I've pressed in that work of the Spirit into your feet. Do you remember the disciples' response? Peter was like, oh, Lord, well, don't just do my feet. Do my whole body. And Jesus said, it's enough that I've washed your feet. And you're fully clean. Why? He was giving them a picture of the type of love that he would give them at the cross. He's saying, look, I'm going to take my life. I'm going to expose myself to your sin. I'm going to take away your sin, and I'm going to replace it with my Holy Spirit. That kind of love. Those disciples, as you well know, were they were a quarrelsome bunch. Amen? Didn't see eye to eye. They didn't possess the type of love that they were going to get. They were much like so many people throughout history. In 1567, King Philip of Spain, he appointed the Duke of Alba as the governor of the lower part of the nation. And that duke was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging a Protestant Reformation. And during his rule, that duke had pronounced upon those who were Christians, very specifically Protestant Christians, that his council would actually be called the Bloody Council. And he just basically slaughtered anybody who was uh, part of that movement, the reforming movement of the, that time that the Protestant Reformation was underway. One of those who he had captured had escaped during winter. And during that escape, he managed to get out onto a frozen lake with his single guard that was chasing him. And he made it all the way across the lake. The guard pursued him across the same patch of ice and about halfway across the ice, that guard fell through the ice. And the prisoner that had escaped had a choice to make and he went back out and rescued the very man that had been chasing him. In the process of that rescue, the man that had been chasing him was able to effect the arrest, took that man back to the court of the Duke of Spain and he received the death penalty and on his way to death he was actually asked the question, why did you come back for me? And he said, because Jesus came back for me. And the stories of that type, the Smithfield murders during England's time of the Reformers, very much the same thing, John Knox, George Wishart, those that were alive during that time, showed that same type of care. Love your enemies. Because nothing says Jesus like loving your enemies. The second thing, which is even harder to do, it's one thing to have some kind of love in your heart for somebody that's done evil to you. It's another thing to actually pray for them. That's hard, isn't it? I don't know about you. It's hard for me to pray for people. Sometimes I don't pray as much as I should for people I actually love. You know what I'm saying, right? Uh, Maybe nobody else in here has that kind of problem, but I think most of us, if we're honest, say that our prayer life could be greatly enhanced. Amen? We could do better at that is what I'm saying. And and so I I can pretty much guarantee you that if you're not, you know, the best prayer in the world, that probably on that list are not a whole lot of people that hate your guts. They don't like you. 
pray for your persecutors. He says, pray for those who persecute you. And throughout history, how, what, can you imagine being in Roseville, Oregon, just a couple days ago? The question was asked, are you a Christian? If the answer was yes, they died. And yet there's already a couple of parents that are actually trying to contact the parents of the shooter. We want you to know. We forgive your son. We're praying for you. That type of love. There was a whole group of Yazidis who are Christians. Most people don't know it. But Armenia, southern Turkey, northern Iraq, was at one point in time, during the time of Constantine, one of the most Christian places on earth. And there's still a very significant Christian population in parts of Iraq, the Kurdish regions, and southern Turkey. And the Yazidis are, are part of that group of Christians. And ISIS has been rounding them up and doing things like putting them in cages, dousing them in gasoline, and setting them on fire. And the rest of the people who aren't being murdered are praying for those who are doing the murdering. That, that kind of prayer life. Pray for those who persecute you. I find it hard to, to, to pray for people who are evil. I really do. I'm getting better at it by God's grace. It's the second thing. You see, as Virgin wisely said, he said, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. If you can't pray for somebody, it's not very likely you're going to ask for God's mercy in their life. That's for God to not give them what they deserve. You see, we need to pray for mercy for people because God is righteous. He is just, and he will judge all sin. We need to pray for mercy. They're not going to get that mercy unless somebody prays for it for them. We, we don't pray because of what they are. We pray because of who they are. Because they're lost sinners and they need a Savior. One of the best illustrations of that is a story from the First World War. Probably some of you have heard it. There's a number of videos that have tried to illustrate it. But it's a fairly simple story for those of you that most know the the First World War, uh, it was perhaps the most evil, despicable war that's ever been fought on the face of this earth in many ways. It was trench warfare, and the trenches weren't, in many cases, more than even 100 yards apart, some of them closer than that. They were fortified, most of the trenches 15, 20 feet deep, opposing armies, uh, very, very close to one another. The German army, the British army specifically fought trench warfares, trench warfare in, in the rolling hills of France for two years. And the Christmas of 19, I believe it was 11, there's a story of the German army and the British army in opposing trenches. And, and on Christmas Eve, one of the English soldiers began to say, <clears throat> began to sing, "The Lord is my shepherd." And then all of a sudden, out of the German trenches, you could hear almost a choir. "Der erst mein Herz." The Lord is my shepherd in German. And they began to sing back and forth, and before you know it. There were some candles that had been lit, and they were stuck up above the trench, and by the time the middle of the evening came, you actually had the German soldiers and the British soldiers out in the middle of the barbed wire of no man's land exchanging gifts and little pieces of food and singing Christmas carols together, all because of these two invisible singers. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody knew who started it, but someone was willing to love their enemy and to pray for those who had the next day would go right back to warfare. The third thing that we can see here in all of this is you need to make sure that the world knows that you're one of God's kids. Notice it says, in order that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
This is the way, folks. This is, this is the way. This is unmistakable. This is a mark that you are one of God's kids like no other mark. Is to love people who have hurt you. Love people who have abused you. Love people with whom you don't have much in common. One of the most common criticisms of Christianity is that we don't live up to our faith. We say that we have that kind of love. We talk about it. We preach about it. We write books about it. But we don't live it. And it's time that we prove that love out. That's why James said, if I, I, I love God but I hate my brother, it makes me a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And you're not going to love the unlovable either. It's part of who we are as Christians. And a fourth thing, <laughs> you need to be better than your fellow man. That's a tall order, isn't it? We, we like to say that we're at least as good as, or maybe not as bad as. We always take it from the, the lesser position. And yet, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what more do you do than them? Do not the Gentiles do that? We need to be better than people in the world. We need to be better than those who mistreat us. Tax gatherers were extortioners, to be sure. And then the final thing, and we'll close with this. I'm going to bring the worship team back out. Have a couple of songs just to praise the Lord, a time of prayer for those who would like it and need it. But the final thing is to be just like your Father in heaven. That's the goal. And so this word perfect, it means to reach an intended goal. It doesn't mean that along the journey you're going to be all that God is, everything that Jesus is. It means that that's the path you're on. And you work towards it. To be that son of your father who is in heaven, that daughter of your father in heaven. And it says, therefore, you be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You work towards being as much like Jesus as you possibly can. That's why I said it gets increasingly more difficult because that is hard for us. Amen? That absolute perfection we will one day see when we gain the glories of heaven. Amen? You take your last breath here, your first breath there, you're going to look into the eyes of Jesus. As a believer, you're going to hear, well done, enter into my kingdom of rest. All the weary, the toil, the things that you've done in this life are going to be over. And so in the meantime... The Lord reminds us, love like he loves. Work at it. And especially work at loving people that don't love you back. Because nothing spells Jesus like loving the unlovable. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to have the prayer team come forward. And as they do, as we begin to worship, if you need to pray... Maybe you got somebody in your life that you're just having a tough time loving them. Come get prayed for. It's that simple. Just start someplace. Maybe you've got a situation in your married life and, and you haven't been the husband that you need to be. You haven't been the wife you need to be. Maybe you've got an issue with your kids, something going on in your family. You just want to clear it up. We confess he's faithful and just to forgive. Amen. Maybe you don't. None of this made any sense to you because you don't know Jesus. We're going to have a prayer team up here. We're going to have a bunch of pastors here. We'd love to pray for you and, and see you invite Jesus into your life so that you can start really loving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And we pray, God, that as we think on these things. Lord Jesus, how you exemplified this love from Calvary's cross is amazing to us. We don't even know what to say, Lord. We, we think of our own lives. We can count all of the things that we've done that should disqualify us from being in your family, and yet uh, you've loved us through all those difficulties. You've forgiven us our sin. You've cleansed us and made us right in your eyes by placing your righteousness, Jesus, in our account. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Pray that you'd set people free tonight. Lord, people that are carrying around hurt and bitterness and anger and hate. 
God, would you release them from that? Would you replace it with your unending love? Lord, your agape love. Lord, help us to love as you love. Help us to love those who uh, even mistreat us, God. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. God's people all said, amen.